This is an ABC podcast. And welcome to the program that moves in mysterious ways, its wonders to achieve. And the mysteries we tackle tonight include, well, the ongoing tentacles of Trump and his mysterious hold on parts of American politics, the mysterious power of fungi to fight climate change and the mysterious death of Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler, and we may have an answer. But Bruce Shapiro first on the mysteries of US politics. Just a month or so ago, Bruce, the Democrats were heading for a hiding in the midterms, but you say things might have changed. It's a very, very different landscape, Philip. I mean, look, we are headed now into the Labor Day weekend, the end of the summer, and the beginning of the serious electioneering uh, season and you know if you had said to most people in politics back in June, yeah you know the Republicans uh, are not gonna ex- as expected take the House they're pr- not gonna take the Senate, um, you would have said what are you smoking and can I have some right? Um, but so much has changed over the summer and if you want to know why, we can take a little boat trip up the Hudson River from New York to um, Ulster County. Kingston, New York, the town where my mother grew up, and the 19th Congressional District, which spans the glorious Hudson Valley, the the Catskill Mountains, and a whole swath of rural New York to the west of that. This is a, a historically pretty Republican part of New York. In recent years, it's been a, a swing state uh, that... Biden won in one election, Trump won in another. Um, And there was a special election there last week in which a Republican moderate, well-known in the area, was expected to walk away. Instead, um, a Democrat, a guy named named, uh, Tim Ryan, who's an Iraq veteran, young politician, this Democrat, walked away with this special election by a small but solid margin. And this Democratic victory in a state that had been, in a district that had been polling consistently Republican, has sent shivers down the spines of Republicans and bolstered the spines of Democrats around the country. The reason is that Ryan's signature issue which seems to have won him this special election, this congressional seat, happened to be abortion rights. He, he carved out a bolder stand than many other Democrats. Um, within hours of the Supreme Court's Dodds decision a couple of months ago, overturning Roe versus Wade, he proclaimed it a major campaign theme. Um, and he throughout the last couple of months has been talking about freedom, including freedom of reproductive choice, women's right to choose as a key part of freedom. That seems to be what put him over the top. And around the country, that issue, along with escalating gun violence, along, of course, with uh, former presidents continuing legal troubles and continuing behavior, seem to be, if we look over the primaries, motivating a high Democratic turnout. And then you have on that, alongside that, a series of Democratic victories over the summer, victories for Joe Biden himself, the big climate change and inflation reduction act, et cetera, that have changed public perception of the president somewhat. His uh, approval ratings have been going up. They were at an all-time low a couple of months ago, and now they're still low, but up considerably. Uh, All of this says that going into the fall, it's a very different um, midterm campaign 
than it was a couple of months ago. And indeed, President Biden seems to be recognizing this. He's scheduled to give a speech on Thursday from Philadelphia um, outside the hall holding the Constitution and and the uh, Declaration of Independence. Um, That is going to according to his aides, talk about democracy being under threat. He already used the word semi-fascist to describe MAGA Republicans. Um, Democrats sense a winner here, and, you know, we'll have to see. It's still going to be close, but there's some chance the Democrats may even hold the House. You know, this is um, a non-trivial change. Now, I want to go back to my favorite topic, and that is uh, the tentacles of Trump. He has requested a special master, which sounds like something out of an S&M parlor. (laughs) Uh, That's Roger Stone's department, I think, not so much Donald Trump's. But um, look, um, the president is entangled in his own tentacles in this case, um, in in the classified documents seized by the FBI in uh, in that. Uh, Mar-a-Lago raid last week. And, you know, the the president, as always, trying to kind of slow things down, the former president, uh, trying to slow things down, seize the momentum back for himself, um, has asked a judge in Florida to go over, to appoint an independent party, to go over all of these documents and segregate anything that might be protected by executive privilege. Um, Interesting. The judge, who's a Trump appointee, indeed appointed in the final months of his presidency, um, says she may do that. There's a hearing tomorrow, but the Justice Department is fighting back and is pointing out they've already reviewed all these documents. They've returned a few that may be the subject of attorney-client privilege. There is no executive privilege that holds to uh, the papers of a former president. It's really the National Archives which is claiming jurisdiction over these properties. It's the people of the United States, after all. But look, the real, this is all a distraction. Um, Trump's legal problems with these documents have actually escalated in the last week now that we have seen the severely redacted affidavit supporting the search of Mar-a-Lago. What that shows... Um, though there's a lot we can't see, but what it what it shows is that the at issue is not just evidence that the president, the former president, has illegally held onto papers belonging to the people of the United States, including national security and classified documents. That's always been on the table for the last couple of weeks, but it looks like there's evidence of obstruction of justice. That is a much bigger fear. For former President Trump than simply holding on to papers. Uh, what the timeline in the affidavit suggests is that President Trump, former President Trump, was himself personally and deeply involved in the review of these documents and in the decision to withhold them from the National Archives to claim ownership of what clearly are public property. Um, and, and in particular, after his lawyer said, oh, yeah, all the papers were returned, to hold on to a bunch of stuff that was still there. So obstruction of justice is a very serious charge. It's not just these untested Espionage Act allegations. I, so the, if he gets a special master, that's simply a delaying tactic, yes? Yeah, I mean, a special master would be an individual who the the court would say, look, this is so politicized, let's come up with someone credible to um, the public. Uh, It would just be a, a lawyer appointed by the judge who would rule on whether any materials need to be returned to the president. It wouldn't solve the underlying charge. Right. It doesn't go to obstruction. It doesn't go to Espionage Act. It doesn't go to anything um, except perhaps a few papers that the president gets to keep between himself and his lawyers. Um, None of the key charges involve those kinds of documents. So this is really, I think, a time, an attempt to slow things down, perhaps get through the midterm elections without um, the Justice Department actually filing charges. I think that's what it's about. 
I want to circle back to Biden and Ukraine in a minute, but before we do, I am very amused by Trump's insistence that his Truth social media website, which he set up to, you know, to to be his version of Twitter, his assumption or his claim that it's going swimmingly well, where all the evidence suggests that it's a huge flop. Well, indeed. In fact, a... a a Republican-owned, controlled, and affiliated company that was set to go public um, with this, uh, to support this venture, has filed paperwork with the Securities and Exchange Commission listing a whole variety of huge risks to the business, including minuscule um, participation, including the president's own legal problems, et cetera. I think if, here's the truth, Philip. If you were to um, take out all of the journalists and Democrats who subscribe to Truth Social just so they can see what it is the president says in real time, you've got a tiny fraction of the public. And it, it really, unlike, let's say, Telegram, um, and some of the other alternatives to Twitter, Truth Social really has not managed to attract an audience beyond the core MAGA base. And that is not enough to sustain a social media venture in an era of Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp and, 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 and. Um, this is going to, this clearly is headed to being yet another Trump stakes, Trump you, Trump, you know, failed venture, the majority of uh, Donald Trump's business ventures. Okay, the war on Ukraine, it's now been going for six terrible months. What challenges does the ongoing war have for Joe politically? Well, yeah, bearing in mind that this is kind of a harrowing moment with the Zaporizhia um, nuclear plant fears of a massive Europe-wide catastrophe if there's a strike on that plant, and the likelihood or what seems to be a new Ukrainian offensive trying to push Russia back from around Kherson. Um, the Biden administration is locked in a big internal argument. On the one side are those who have been pushing for a bigger confrontation with Putin, who want to give, for all of the aid the U.S. has given Ukraine, we have withheld up until now long-range missiles and delivery systems, large number of delivery systems capable of firing them, things that could uh, send artillery shells way into Russian territory. President Biden himself has evidently been deeply skeptical of um, give, the wisdom of giving these kind of weapons to the Ukrainians, bearing in mind the, the notion that we still are going to have to negotiate with Russia eventually, bearing in mind the fear of escalation, of nuclear escalation, of other things. This is now a big choice facing the administration. Ukraine is pushing for more of these long-range weapons, too, quite publicly. Um, and there's a, it's, it's simply a big divide in the heart of the administration between those you might think of as, uh, as the Russia superhawks and those who are the defend Ukraine, but let's not take this too far, Hawks. That's, uh, that's kind of where the center of gravity is now. And it's really not clear which, you know, where this is going to wind up. In 10 seconds or less, is Joe now more likely to go for a second term? Well, certainly his momentum coming out of this summer um, that climate change and inflation bill, the very interesting and somewhat controversial student debt forgiveness order that he, he placed last week, this speech that he's giving in Philadelphia with what sounds like new and bold language about democracy suggests that after a year of declining 
performance and worries. He is, at least for now, feeling the wind at his back. And Good on you, Bruce. In the last few weeks, we've been hearing less about uh, less about alternatives. Uh, Biden seems in it to win it, at least for now. Good on you, Bruce. Bruce Shapiro, exec director of the Dutch Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. Coming up, Toby Kears on the superpowers of fungi. We haven't discussed uh, fungi for a while. The last time was when uh, Michael Pollan came back on the program to advocate uh, the medical use of his magic mushrooms. But tonight we're going to hear there may be even more magic in fungi in the fight against climate change. Michael wants to heal, heal people. Here's an argument about healing the planet. Because hidden beneath the ground are trillions of kilometres of fungal networks that, well, they sustain much of the Earth's plant life and act as a giant carbon sink. But according to Dr Toby Kears and a fellow scientist, these fantastic uh, fungi are not getting anywhere near the attention they deserve. Toby is Professor of Evolutionary Biography based at that wonderful institution, the Free University of Amsterdam. She's also Executive Director and Chief Scientist at the non-profit, the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, or SPUN. They're currently on a mission to map and create an atlas of this remarkable hidden world. Dr. Toby, welcome to our little program. We're talking about a particular type of fungi here, aren't we? Known as, and I'll have a crack at pronouncing it, mycorrhizal zoa fungi. Introduce me. Well, that's pretty good. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here. Introduce so us to introduce things. us to this brand of fungi. I'm going to. And first, what we call them is mycorrhizal fungi. And, and mycorrhizae, they're a type of beneficial fungi, and they form a very intimate connection with plant roots. It's what we call like a symbiotic partnership. And what plants are doing is they're feeding mycorrhizal fungi carbon in the form of sugars and fats. And in return, the fungi use the carbon and they grow these massive networks in the soil. And they're foraging for nutrients like common ones you know, like phosphorus and nitrogen, that they then feed to the plants. So it creates this partnership um, that forms, I don't know, we call it an underground circulatory system of, of fast-flowing nutrients really beneath all of our global ecosystems. I've also heard it referred to as the wood wide web. Exactly. So it's called the wood wide web because these connections form between plant roots. They make physical connections. And what we like to point out that it's not just the woods, it's not just the forests that form these connections. It's also the grasslands, the drylands, even desert plants associate with these mycorrhizal fungi. You make the point that if forests are the lungs of the world, these underground fungal networks are the circulatory system. That's right, exactly. These these networks are are an underground circulatory system because they're moving so much nutrients, right? The networks are mind-blowingly dense. Uh, a handful of healthy soil can contain up to 100 kilometers of these mycorrhizal fungi. So put another way, these networks can make up about 50% of the living biomass of soils. And so within these, within these networks is this fast flow of phosphorus, nitrogen, and of course, carbon. The, the plants are feeding to the fungi, drawing down atmospheric CO2. At what point in history does, in deep time, do fungi arrive on the planet? Uh, that's, that's still up for debate, but these mycorrhizal fungi come onto the scene about 450 million years ago. So this is a point in time when aquatic plants were just living in water systems. You say the networks are incredibly dense. How dense are we talking? 
Well, as I said, a handful of healthy soil can contain about 100 kilometers of mycorrhizal fungi. And so if you're to look, let's say, under a hectare of grasslands, that would be the length of 12 million Amazon rivers. So incredibly dense and long. But of course, they're just packed into the soil. And globally, the total length of the webs is just the top 10 centimetres of soil, but it's equivalent to about half the width of our galaxy. <laughs> That's the number we like to say. Yes, of course, we're making a huge estimate, but this is what this is what scientists have estimated is the length of the fungi just in the top 10 centimetres. So again, incredibly vast. Toby, are they visible to the naked eye? Now, a trained eye can just make out very thin threads of network in the soil. And of course, some mycorrhizal fungi do make mushrooms above ground. I think you probably know some, maybe chanterelles or morels, and we can see those. But the most ubiquitous type lives completely underground. But what we've done is, as scientists, we've had luck in recent years actually bringing the partnership into the lab. And then we can use like microscopes to study the flows inside the networks. And it's absolutely mesmerizing, right? The network is like an open pipe system. We can watch how the fungi control the nutrient flows inside these pipes. The fungi, they, they cause the flows to go faster, slower, even switch directions. So now we're really trying to decode the language of these fungal flows. Now, you make the point that mushrooms are the, well, the tip of the iceberg, giving us a hint of what's going on underneath. Now, why can they be such a powerful ally against climate change? Well, soils are a really big carbon sink. I, I Most people don't realize this, but about 75% of the Earth's carbon, terrestrial carbon, is stored underground. So as I explained before, plants feed carbon to mycorrhizal fungi. And these fungi, they act as like a sink or a vacuum to help move CO2 from the atmosphere to the soil via this plant fungal pathway. And of course, removal of the CO2 helps limit global warming. But fungi are even, even more superpowers than that because what they do is create a very stable, sticky soil. They, they almost act like a, like a scaffolding that holds up a building. And if you lose that mycorrhizal network, if you lose the scaffolding, the soil and all of its carbon sequestrating power, it washes away. So that's why it's important that we protect them. Toby, you gave a very popular TED talk back in 2019 about how plants and fungi make a, a more sophisticated trade deal than humans. I like that metaphor. Well, it's actually, we can use it as a metaphor, but what we do in the lab is actually use economic theory, like ec economic systems to predict what a fungi should do in any given situation. So we can set up these experiments where we, we ask, ask uh, the fungi, what is the price that you would sell these resources at? And the fungi never, never fail to surprise us. They do very clever trade strategies whereby they will, let's say, take resources from one side of the network, move it across the network and trade it with root systems that need more of that nutrients and actually get a better price. Now, let's focus on the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, your outfit spun. Why has there been such a, a global blind spot when it comes to these fungal networks that SPUN has to address? Well, I think the easy answer is that we can't see them, right? It's much easier for us to care about the icons of nature that we can see, like coral reefs, for example. But you can really think of mycorrhizal networks as the, the coral reefs of the soil. They're hidden, but they're really paramount to ecosystem health and survival. So it's, it's, you know, as a scientist, it's exciting. We've been documenting their importance for decades, but now the public is starting to listen and actually care. My old friend Tim Flannery says that we know much more about outer space than we do about the oceans. And in a sense, scientists know much more about the above-ground world than the subterranean ecosystem. Exactly. This is sort of like the the most 
um, the biggest battle cry that we can make right now is just how little we know about underground ecosystems. And actually with SPUN, what we're trying to say is that we need a NASA of the underground. You can think of SPUN <laughs> as the NASA of the underground. We're going to use these maps to chart the most understudied ecosystems on Earth. Now, they're not counted in the Convention on Biological Diversity. Well, we are going to change that. I mean, that's why we need what are called myconauts, which are myco means um, fungus and not means explore, to start advocating for fungi in these types of conventions and trying to get really a handle on this biodiversity that's out there that we haven't yet documented. You mentioned uh, barrier reefs, well, like the, the Great Australian Reef, which are clearly under threat, but your fungi are facing a number of threats as well, once again from climate change. Yeah, yeah. So it's climate change, it's deforestation. I mean, think about deforestation, right? Trees are really ripped from the ground. We're also, we're worried about agricultural expansion. It, it introduces all kinds of problems like fungicide, right? Fungicide, meaning fungal killer, and, and tillage, which physically tears apart these fungal networks. Um, urbanization. It paves over living underground ecosystems. But there's also hidden threats like too much fertilizer. So you have to remember that plants have relied on mycorrhizal networks for hundreds of millions of years, but then we invented fertilizer. And now there's evidence that plants stop feeding carbon to mycorrhizal fungi if we soak them in fertilizer. Like, why would you feed the fungi if you have access directly to the nutrients? So industrialized so agriculture as much as forestry is a big problem for them. It is, it is, because when we stop, when the plants stop feeding mycorrhizal fungi, the, the fungi die. And so uh, we're worried about, you know, changes in, in soil temperature, fires, a lot of the global change that's happening um, around the world is ones that threaten mycorrhizal networks as well. Toby, are new forms of fungus being discovered? <laughs> yes, that's also an understatement. I mean, I think this is probably the least explored kingdom. It's an entire kingdom. And so I think the latest estimate is that plant, uh, scientists think that there's around 5 million different kinds of species out there. And, uh, you know, we only know about a couple hundred thousand at this point. Wow. Okay. So tell me more about SPUN and the project you're undertaking to map the networks. Yeah, so the mission of SPUN, it's really to map the biodiversity of the Earth's mycorrhizal networks and then advocate for its protection. So it goes a step further and says we need to protect these networks. Now, we can't measure fungal biodiversity on every pixel on Earth. So we work with these machine learning algorithms that are developed in collaboration with um, Crowther Lab at ETH and organizations like, like Global Fungi. Now, what these algorithms do is they help us predict the hidden hotspots of mycorrhizal biodiversity across the globe. So we use these algorithms to make predictions, but these are just predictions. This is what's really important. So then what we do is SPUN works with local collaborators and, communi and communities and actually go and ground truth these predictions, literally ground truth the predictions, sample the world's soils, and then sequence the fungal DNA. What are some of the fungal hotspots you've identified? I understand that we might have some right here in Australia. Yeah, exactly. So we, we just returned uh, from a trip to Patagonia, working with the Fungi Foundation and local collaborators. And, and that was a really high predicted high biodiversity hotspot because it has some of the most unique plants on Earth, including these trees that are some of the oldest on Earth. Now, in Australia, we're interested in the dune ecosystems along the southern coast. Now, these habitats have been exposed to really extreme conditions like low water and high salt. And so we think that the plants have evolved really unique mycorrhizal partnerships. Australia, it's funny to think about it from this underground perspective, but it's actually known as a hotspot for root evolution, right? Australian plants, plants have evolved really unique sort of root structures that are unseen in other plants on Earth. So again, we're interested in how those unique structures interact with these fungi. That, that surprises you know, the untrained ear because here is fungal biodiversity in places with unfertile soil. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's because the plants depend so heavily on the mycorrhizal networks to 
access the nutrients. So in places where there's really no nutrients, you have to actually put more carbon into the fungal network. Now, you, uh, you're currently in the process of collecting samples from the hotspots and you've been thither and yon. What do you hope the information, or how do you hope the information will be used, Toby? Yeah, so we really need these maps to track the health, the biodiversity, the function of mycorrhizal networks. I think they're going to provide us with an early warning system for ecosystem collapse. So some people call soil organisms the canary in the coal mine, right? Because they can help us predict when ecosystems start to deteriorate. And these networks, they're disappearing at an alarming rate. And that, that rate is actually accelerating climate change. So I think that these maps are really important to track the, the health and the function of the networks. As I said, it's the NASA underground. Before I let you go, where did your own obsession with this amazing species begin? <laughs> well, I think once you once you discover the world of fungi, then obsession quickly follows. Um, so for me, it was, I guess, when I was about 19 and I was living on a research island in the middle of the Panama Canal. And a scientist from the Smithsonian taught me to lie on the ground and look up at tropical forests from the soil up. And when you embrace that worldview, everything shifts. I've been I've been enjoying lying in the dirt ever since. <laughs> Well, you're a fascinating scientist and it's been great to talk to you. So thanks for coming on the Little Wireless program. My guest has been uh, Toby Kears, an evolutionary biologist based at the Free University of Amsterdam and co-founder of SPUN, which is the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks. Coming up, the mystery of Australia's most baffling cold case. Listeners of my age will remember the Menzies era as being quite straight-laced. But it was the time for an extraordinary murder mystery. It was a story about illicit suburban sex and drugs and political assassinations and espionage and nuclear secrets and bohemian naughtiness and the inability of the police to find a culprit. On New Year's Day, 1963, a brilliant physicist, Dr Gilbert Bogle, and a Mrs Margaret Chandler were found dead in a lover's lane beside the picturesque Lane Cone River here in Sydney. And uh, there was no evidence to suggest how they died. And the bizarre manner in which the bodies had been covered only added to the mystery. And despite drawing on the expertise of police and forensic agencies around the world, the coroner failed to determine how the victims met their fate and the case remained unsolved for decades. Until my next guest came along with a new theory, one that he presented in a 2006 doco on the ABC. Peter Butt is a filmmaker and podcaster who specialises in true crime and Cold War espionage, and he's delved into this disturbing case, finding all sorts of new details, which he's put into his podcast called Who Killed Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler? And he's with me in the studio to take us through it. Peter, a warm welcome. Thank you for the Little Wireless program. Thank you, thank you. First of all, a portrait, please, of Gilbert Bogle. Dr. Bogle was uh, a a brilliant scientist. He worked for the CSIRO in Sydney. He was a New Zealand-born, British-educated physicist, and his specialty was mazes, which were a um, highly sensitive um, electronic equipment to monitor space for signals. So he was an early exponent of what's become known as SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yes, that that and communication, I guess, with uh, with um, you know uh, spaceships were going out there, you know, in around the dark side of the moon. I, I guess. 
And well. he was married with four kids. Yes, married with four kids. Uh, they were all living in Sydney and he'd been here for about uh, five or six years working at the CSIRO. But he had a, a penchant for hitting on women. Well, yeah, that's one way of putting it. He, he was a very attractive man. Uh, he played um, a number of musical instruments, clarinet especially. He was a very athletic man, uh, charming, and everybody who met him was always taken. This was a, this was a special man. He was brilliant too. You know, he, was, he was intelligent and uh, women just basically fell for him. Tell us a little about, uh, about Mrs Chandler, please. Mrs Chandler was a uh, Sydney-born uh, nurse. Uh, she had two children, married to another CSIRO scientist, Geoffrey Chandler. And was Geoffrey Chandler a talented scientist? He was, yeah, he's a, he was a more an electronics technician and he was working on uh, equipment for uh, the Salisbury um, rocketry range uh, equipment back in the days when the British and the Australians were, were sending off missiles in the desert, and he was involved in that. Now, Margaret and Gilbert would have met through Geoffrey. That's right. They met at a Christmas party only 10 days before they died. Uh, it was a CSIRO Christmas party. Uh, Geoffrey uh, observed them uh, uh, getting on very well, and uh, a, a fellow... A uh, scientist, a fellow CSIRO employee, I'm sorry, a photographer, uh, was holding a party and he invited uh, the Chandlers along to the party where Gilbert Bogle was going to be 10 days later on New Year's. I mentioned bohemian naughtiness in my uh, introduction. So time to introduce the Sydney push because it, in a sense, plays a role in all of this. It does. Uh, Geoffrey was what you would call a fringe member of the push. He wasn't at the centre. Uh, and uh, the evening of the, of the party... Uh, I'm sorry, but we should explain free love was the mantra. Oh, yeah, free love was, was the mantra. They would probably say that wasn't the only mantra, but they were, they were basically a, an intellectual group um, where they decided that uh, life was to be lived and not to be contained by societal mores. That's another way of putting it. Well, you're bending your back over to be tactful. Okay. <laughs> now, what do we know about the night of the party before Gilbert and Margaret went off together? Geoffrey Chandler and, and Mrs Chandler arrived at the party at 10.30. Uh, Dr Bogle was there. Dr Bogle greeted Margaret. Geoffrey, uh, after an hour, took the advantage of going off to another party, which was quite surprising. No one expected him to disappear <laughs> like that. And he ended up at a, at a party which was run by uh, Ken Buckley, who was a, a university professor, and he was uh, a member of the push. And so it was a, a full-on push party. And also at that party was Geoffrey's girlfriend. Geoffrey had a girlfriend by the name of Pan Logan. She was a, a secretary at the university. Uh, he met up with her and went back to her place uh, for an hour or so and then returned to the Chatswood party where uh, his wife and Dr Bogle were getting on very well. He asked Dr Bogle if he would take his wife home because he, he wanted to go back to his girlfriend's home. So that's what happened at four o'clock in the, in the morning Geoffrey uh, left the party. Soon after four, Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler left the party and uh, they went down to the Lanco River. Known as a lover's lane and what happened next, of course, is still unclear. But a few hours later, the bodies are found and at the subsequent inquest, its evidence was given, and this is important, that Mrs Chandler had not had sexual intercourse. That's debatable. Dr Bogle was found on the bank of the river, about a metre in. He was um, covered... In a state of undress. In a state of undress. As she was. As she was. Right. She was found on the bed of the river, uh, 17 metres further along the river, on the riverbed itself. Their clothing was found just below Dr Bogle. There was underwear, uh, a belt and Mrs Chandler's shoes. And this is where the couple actually sought privacy was on the bed of the river. So it was before, during or after sexual intercourse is what you're arguing 
quite cogently, I would have thought. Wasn't there also something to do with a bit of carpet? There was a piece of carpet found underneath Dr Bogle's coat uh, on top of his shirt. That piece of carpet was later discovered to have come from the back of his car and it was used to create something to lay on 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 the river bed. Now, the bodies were found, I understand, by a, uh, a couple of kids searching for golf balls. They alert the cops? The police turn up and they find Dr Bogle on the bank of the river. He looks like he's clothed. He looks like he's wearing his suit. But because it's been draped over It's him. been draped Apparently over Apparently what, for modesty? Yes, yeah, it looks like somebody's come along, seen this half-naked man there and uh, tried to rearrange some clothing over the top of him. The person may not have known he was actually dead, but he was, he was laying out, he could have been a drunk. And the, but, of course, the person might also have been a murderer. It could well have been a murderer, but not too many murderers sort of tidy up the, the situation to make it look like, you know, the person's just having a sleep. So it was obvious that both had died from some sort of poisoning. That's right. There was no indication of any violence on the bodies. There was no uh, gunshots or stab wounds. And so the only possible thought was that it was either a drug or a poison that they'd consumed. Uh, and it could have been at the party, but subsequent uh, investigations, all of the evidence was taken from all of the homes of, of people from sheds and, you know, poisons, and they, they investigated virtually all the party-goers. Including and LSD. They were looking for quite exotic possibilities. They were. That, LSD wasn't that well known in Sydney at the time, but tests were carried out and uh, there was no evidence of LSD. Aphrodisiacs were another suggestion. There were four as aphrodisiacs tested for, but there was no evidence that they were, that was in their system. Now, because of New Year's Day being a public holiday, forensic examination of the bodies was delayed for 36 hours. Not helpful. It's not helpful, but it didn't actually uh, stop the tests for any poison. They take the organs, they concentrate the organs, and then they test them for all of these poisons. The police at the time felt that it was uh, a possible reason why the uh, case hadn't been solved. But really, when I spoke to the toxicologist, I, I found the toxicologist, I interviewed him for a number of hours, and it didn't bother him at all. Now, the inquest takes place in May 63. How far did it go in resolving the mystery? Well, it didn't go very far at all. It didn't. They couldn't work out what killed the couple. So therefore, without a cause of death, you couldn't determine who killed them. LNL on RN and on podcast via the ABC Listen app. And I'm talking here live in the studio with the filmmaker and author Peter Butt about his new podcast, Who Killed Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler. And it effectively concludes Peter's decades-long investigation into the plight of the lovers found dead on the banks of the Lane Cove River. Now, in the late 40s, after a decade of complaints, the local council is considering evacuating the Riverside community due to an offensive stench. And that stench becomes the major part of your research. That's right. I stumbled upon it. I initially wanted to make a film about uh, the case and I wrote off to the police for records um, and I knew when I got back from the post office that they wouldn't give me records from a, a, a cold case. But anyway, I, I thought I'll give it a try. And I had a bit of a nap and about half an hour after I, when I woke up, I thought with, I had an idea where these two people were found was on a mangrove and mangroves give off gases, hydrogen sulphide gas which in high concentrations is, is very, very potent. So I contacted a couple of scientists who deal in uh, mangroves and they said, yes, it's possible. I didn't tell them anything about the case, uh, but they said, yes, it's possible. If someone was laying down in a mangrove... Because it's heavier than air. It's a heavier than air gas, that's right. And in the cool of the morning, it will hover. So, and they were laying in kind of a depression uh, down there on the bank of the river. It was perfect 
a perfect idea that had one hole. It wasn't the cause of death. The mangroves couldn't have given up off enough. But you, your suspicions were aroused. They were. And you started mm. to look up and down the river. That's right. Uh, I contacted an environmental scientist with the question, was there anything wrong with this river? Could there be any reason why the mangroves would be giving off more gas? You know, that was, that was my silly question. She said, no, but there is a, a scientific investigation that was carried out on the river and it wasn't to do with the mangroves, it was to do with the river itself and the bed of the river. Uh, so I've, I got this report and I found the scientist who carried out this investigation. Back in, in the 1940s, there was a whole decade of the river giving off this terrible stench People were having breathing problems. They were even going to evacuate the area of residents if something wasn't done. And so this scientist went in there and he discovered that the bed of the river was saturated with hydrogen sulphide gas. It was emanating from a flour and starch mill downstream. It was being pushed up by the tide and it was would come to a stop at, a, at the weir and the most concentration of hydrogen sulphide gas in the river bottoms was found within a quarter mile of the weir. And this is exactly where Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler died. And you hypothesised that the river had effectively burped and they died from uh, burping. That's right. But the question is, why didn't they know hydrogen sulphide gas is, smells like rotten egg gas? It's, it's, it's a terrible odour. Why didn't Dr Bogle, a scientist, recognise this gas there. The trick is with hydrogen sulphide, it's a master of deceit. At, when you get to 150 parts per million, which isn't very much, it overcomes the olfactory nerve and you have no idea that you're in danger. It sort of numbs the nose. It numbs the nose right. and you can be oblivious to the fact that you're in danger. And in many situations around the world, uh, People, scientists go in there, police go into situations where there's hydrogen sulphide and they also asphyxiate. Okay, now you take your research to the police, they grant you access to the files. This leads you to the uh, chief toxologist on the case, Viv Mahoney. Yes, um, Viv Mahoney was very surprised when I contacted him. He invited me up to his home in Queensland and uh, when I uh, turned up, his first words were to me, uh, what took you so long? I was the first person to ever ask him about his experience on this case, which happened to be his last major case because he spent 13 months on it. He was broken by this case. He could not solve it. He felt responsible for it, emotionally drained, and he didn't go back to um, forensic toxicology. But the wonderful thing about it was that I sat down with him and he said, I'm going to tell you the, the story from the beginning to end of my investigation. Because being his last case, he remembered every moment of it. He spoke for a couple of hours, but half an hour into it, he told me something he hadn't told anybody before, which was that there was a strange discoloration of the blood of both victims, which he couldn't explain. His chief, the uh, government analyst laboratory, had never seen it before. He went up to the Mitchell Library and went into the scientific library looking for an answer to this um, mystery. Why is the blood purple? And when I finished recording his interview, I said, I think I know what that is. Peter, you also had an interview with a retired psychologist, which leads us to eyewitnesses. That's right. Uh, about uh, six years after I made my film, I was contacted by a retired psychologist who overheard a conversation while he was walking his dog. Some picnickers were talking about the Bogle Chandler case and, and my discovery. Uh, and he said, uh, look, I think I should tell you this. I've got something off. I want to get something off my chest. Um, he re recalled two years after the Bogle Chandler case, he intervened in a, in a sexual assault in Canberra in a park. He saved a young lass from being raped. Uh, he got her into his car and he said to her, what are you doing out this time of the morning getting yourself um, attacked? And she said, I, I, I can't sleep. I'm having nightmares from something I witnessed two years before. And she had witnessed the deaths along with another 
with her own friend being in a lover's lane. She was there for the same reason and she had witnessed uh, Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler asphyxiate. And that's the, the new material that's in your podcast. Yes, absolutely. How do the families of... Uh, well, Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler feel about your um, Sherlock Holmesian activities? Well, Geoffrey Chandler was always supportive. He was the, the prime suspect. He'd been taken over the coals by the police. He, was, uh, he had to face three, hour, three days of um, giving evidence the in, at the inquest. His life was ruined. He lost his job at the CSIRO. He was a beaten man by this. And when I came along and told him... Uh, what I'd found, he just supported it from the beginning. When the film went to air, I saw him the next day and he had a smile on his face and it was the first time I'd seen a, a smile on Geoffrey Chandler's face. And the, the Bogle family uh, had always tried to maintain their privacy. They also had been hounded by the, the media, and as, as was Geoffrey, and they didn't want anything to do with anything. And... I'd even approached them at the time of making the film and, and said, look, I'm making this film, please, you know, understand that I'm coming at it with an answer. But anyway, they didn't respond to that. But once Mrs. Mrs. Bogle passed away, the children got together and said, let's contact me. They contacted me. They said, we appreciate what you found. Um, how about an inquest? And... Uh, I said, well, that's easier said than done. <laughs> will will there be an inquest another? Well, look, um, I've been down that road before. One coroner said yes, but then she retired a month later. And another coroner said, oh, you've got to go to the Supreme Court. Well, my solution is let's get it out there. Let's get the all my evidence out there in the podcast and let's see if we can we can drag the coroner to to put, put a, uh, together a new inquest. Peter, I still think the Russians did it, but thank you for coming in. Peter Butt, the host and investigator of the podcast Who Killed Dr Bogle and Mrs Chandler? And I recommend you listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. On our next Beloved Listeners, we will be chatting to reporter Dana Morse for our regular Indigenous news segment. And then we're going to have a long chat with Joel Gurgis, a climate scientist who dares to hope. See you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.